I remember one author, he, he was asked by an audience, why does he write? And he says, I write to make the voices in my head be quiet. It's a common question, why do we write? Why do we write so much? Why do biographers write, right? They get, uh, they get something about the character, just draws their attention, and they want to know everything about them. And then the more they learn, the more they want to tell it to other people. And, uh, you know, you, sometimes biographers are prone to hero worship, right? They, they, they uh, cover up all the flaws of the character that they're describing, and they tell only the good things about the person. And, and there's a weightiness to that, right? When you're telling somebody else's story, you have their life in your hands. And you can shape that narrative, and the way that you interpret the events in their life will be come down to future generations and will influence them. And we try to tell our own stories on social media, don't we? Right? We want to know, we want everybody to know that I'm having this for dinner. And we take a picture of it. It's so important, this status update. And then, you know, we're, or I'm, I'm here, you know, you're taking a picture at the Mona Lisa. And you, you want everybody to know what you're doing. You're, you're, your own bi- you're writing your own autobiography on social media. Media And as much as we try, those mediums don't really tell the whole story, right? We've, we've all been influenced by the Instagrammers whose lives are, are really actually all in shambles. Some of those people rent those houses and, and just to make it look like they live that way. And so it's not true, but their point of view, the way that they see the world, they want others to see it that way too. And they draw them in. And it's very similar in the Gospels. We have four Gospels, and they're not the same, right? They're from different authors, different points of view. They saw the same events, but from a different angle. And when I see and go through an event, it's the same event. We might describe all the broad outlines of the facts the same, but my perspective of it is shaped by my own experience and is further shaped by my desire to tell that story? What am I trying to get across? What am I trying to emphasize? So this morning we're beginning a new series in the Gospel of John and we're asking the question, why did John write his Gospel? Matthew and Mark did give no explicit reason why they wrote their Gospel. Luke tells us that he is compiling a narrative based upon uh, all of his research from eyewitnesses to give to his fellow Theophilus. But John, John tells us explicitly why he writes his gospel. And so as we begin, I thought it would be helpful as an introduction to the book to see why it is that John wrote his gospel. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 20. We are going to wear out John in your Bibles because we're going to be in John for the next couple of years. And so John is going to be one of those sections where your Bible just flops right open to it. And that's great. But we're going to be at the end of John this morning at John chapter 20, looking at verse 30 to 31. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. John ends his gospel close to the end by saying this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have this word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Gospel of John. We thank you for the fourfold gospel, how all of the evangelists saw the same events of the life and death and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they recorded them for us so that we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So as we open up this text this morning, as we look at why John wrote this gospel, we ask for hearts that would be receptive to the truth, that we would see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and that we would believe and have the life that is promised. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. So we see very clearly John gives us a thesis statement. John wrote his gospel so that you might believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that you would have life in his name. So very briefly, I just want to go through some of the things that would introduce a gospel. Who is writing this? I remember as a kid, I used to think, you know, if you're reading through John and you get, to, I think it's verse 19 or maybe 21, and it says, this is the account of John the, I, the Baptist. And so I remember thinking as a kid, well, it must be John the Baptist wrote this book, right? He's the first John mentioned. And actually, the apostle John is never mentioned in the gospel, right? How does he describe himself? He describes himself as the disciple of, whom Jesus loved, right? And is that, it kind of can sound kind of arrogant, like, wow, you're the one that Jesus loves. But it's actually a, a term of humility. John is self-effacing, right? He's, he's not mentioning himself. How does he define himself? How does he describe himself? I'm the one that Jesus loves. I'm the one that Jesus has set his affection on, right? And so, we have over and over in the Gospel of John the love of Christ poured out for us. It's on every page, right? It's flowing everywhere. And John, one of the apostles, was the son of Zebedee. With James, his brother, and Peter, they formed the inner circle, if you will, of Jesus' disciples. They were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus included them on some of some of the healings where he raised the young man from the dead when other disciples were not a part of those events. John was probably wrote his gospel around A.D. 85 to 90, somewhere in the latter part of the first century. And the reason we believe that is because of a couple of lines of evidence. One, um, very early fragments, the earliest fragments we have of the manuscripts come from around A.D. 135, and they include the Gospel of John, chapter 18. So we know that it was written before 135, and we also know that it had to be written sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's because of the way that John shapes the narrative to show that Jesus is a replacement of the temple. Now, in A.D. 70, the Roman emperor Titus, or the Roman general Titus, who would later become the emperor, he lays siege to Jerusalem. Actually, it started in A.D. 66, and it went on for four years. So finally, he overthrew the walls, and then he burned the temple and tore down the whole edifice. Uh, nothing of that second temple remains. 
except for some stones that have been dug up since then. Now, this was promised in Matthew 24. Remember when Jesus and the disciples are walking by the temple mount and the disciples are ooing and awing at, look at these stones, look how marvelous they are. And then Jesus said, you see those stones, not one of them is going to be left atop another. And he promised that the, the temple would be destroyed. He even told the Jews, destroy this temple and I rebuild it in three days. And John says he was referring to his body. But he, but he, and he was, but he's also signaling the fact that the old economy, the way that God was worshipped in the old covenant was coming to an end. Because Christ is the beginning of the new covenant. He, that fancy word that we've used before, he inaugurates, he begins the new covenant, right? And in his life and the apostles occupy that transition period between the old covenant, the way that God mediated between God and man was through the priesthood, sacrificial system. But in the new covenant, how do we, how is God's presence mediated? It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. As John says in in chapter 1, verse 15, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that word, dwelt, dwelt among us, is actually tabernacled. He set up His tent among us. God came to live with us, right? And that's the whole point of the entire flow of Scripture. It's not we trying to get to heaven, but it's God making his dwelling place with us. God came in the incarnation in a way that he'd never come before. Right? His glory filled the temple, and the priest would go in once a year near that presence. But now God is drawn near in Christ, and he dwells among his people. And so, the reason why we know that John is probably in the range, wrote, wrote in that range, is because of the way that he shapes the temple narratives, how he re- responds to Jesus as a new temple. And we'll talk about that when we get to those sections in John. And we notice in verse 30 that he says that many signs, there Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Uh, some of you have read um, the biographies, maybe, of Lyndon B. Johnson by Robert Caro. There, it's a masterful biography. Uh, it's three volumes. It's very exhaustive. Right? He covers in detail uh, not, even, not even his whole life, but really his rise to power in the Senate and then his presidency and on and on. And he's very thorough. The Gospels are not like that, right? They're not a regular biography exhaustive in all the details of Jesus' life. We have very little about Jesus' birth, right? Only uh, Luke and Matthew have birth narratives. Very, very little about Jesus' childhood, that period of time between his birth and when he began his public ministry, probably somewhere around the age of 30. And so uh, those things are not as important for the story of the gospel that John is telling. And why? Why is that? That's because Jesus didn't come just to live a life, did he? From the very beginning, from his conception and his incarnation, Jesus has a mission. And all of the Gospels have a trajectory that they're moving towards. And that's his death. Jesus came to die. That was his purpose. 
And his ministry is all geared towards that direction. And also, we notice that the book is not strictly chronological. Uh, and many, we notice this in 1 Samuel too. Uh, many of the Hebrew writers did not write strictly with chronology. Yes, in broad outlines, you can say this event was before this event. But largely, the message or the, the text is shaped to form a theological message, to teach something about Jesus. And so John, although Jesus did many signs, in fact, in chapter 21, he says, all the books in the world could not fill all the things that Jesus did. But these are included so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that means that John has included the very salient points that will lead, that will drive you to faith in Jesus Christ. So the entire book of John is built around seven, some say eight, I think there's eight, signs. And John alludes to these within the text. Traditionally, these seven signs have been considered to be the water that is turned into wine in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is called by John the first sign. The second is the healing of the officer's son in chapter 4. Verse 46, and this is called the second sign in verse 54. Then there's the healing of the lame man in chapter 5, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, the walking on the water in chapter 6, verse 16, the healing of the man born blind in chapter 9, and the raising of Lazarus is chapter 11. And that is commonly seen as the seventh one. But I would add that the death and resurrection of Jesus are the eighth sign. Um, that's because Jesus rose from the, on the eighth day, right? The first day of the Sunday. So these signs are given so that you might believe and believing have life. And so these are the two points that I want to draw out this morning. John wrote his gospel so that you might believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And so we're, we're going to look at these two aspects of Christ's ministry, that he is the Christ and that he is the Son of God, and that Jesus of Nazareth is and embodies these characteristics. So first, Jesus is the Christ. Now, that's not like Taylor Bradley, Jesus Christ. You know, it's not his last name. That's the office that he holds, Christos, which is the Greek translation of the word Messiah. And Messiah just means anointed. Now, you have to think with me, which are the offices in the Old Testament economy for which you had to be anointed? Well, all three offices, prophet, priest, and king, had to be anointed. Chiefly, we think of the anointed as being the king, and that's true. But also, the prophet and priest were anointed. And these were anointed with oil to symbolize that they are filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit comes upon a person in the Old Testament covenant to do a specific mission, right? It's different than the filling with the Spirit in the new covenant, right? Which brings us into intimate union with Christ. Now, that's not to say the old covenant people weren't united to Christ, but that's to say when the text talks about being filled with the Spirit in the Old Testament, it's referring to them being empowered for a specific task. Remember when the Spirit came upon Saul and he was supposed to do the job of defeating the Philistines, and he failed to do it. 
right? He was empowered for a specific mission. In the same way, so the, the Messiah is the one who has been anointed for a specific task. And that, that task began to be filled out from the very moment of the fall. You see, when God had created man, he made him upright and righteous and perfect fellowship and union with God. But because of sin, you know what happened. We lost that fellowship. Now we're bent in on ourselves in sin. We're alienated from God. We're separated from Him from our sin. And there's no way to bridge that chasm back to God, right? The curse and penalty for our sin is eternal death. Separated from God forever. How would we ever overcome that situation? Only through God sending a deliverer. And he promised that right in the middle of that curse in Genesis 3, 16, or excuse me, 15, when he promised that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and that eventually the seed of the woman would crush the head of that serpent. So we, we, we learn something about who this deliverer is going to be. He's going to be a serpent slayer. Right? He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then as redemptive history unfolds, as Scripture tells the story of redemption, we learn more and more about what this Redeemer would be like, who He would be and what He would do. He would be a prophet like Moses, speaking the words of God. He would be a priest like Melchizedek and a king like David. He would be the Son of Man from Daniel, the servant from Isaiah, which we read earlier. Abraham's seed and the woman's offspring. So the whole of the Old Covenant is filling out the picture. What is the Redeemer going to be like? Who would He be and what would He do? How would He free us from sin and bring us back to God? Remove that enmity that exists and make us at peace with God. That is the work of the Christ, the Messiah. No one person in the Old Covenant perfectly embodies what the Messiah would be like. David does come close. He, he functions like a priest. We saw many times he took the ephod and he inquired of the Lord. That's a priestly task. And, and in the Acts chapter 2, verse 20, Peter refers to him as a prophet when he spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. And we know that he was a king. So, in, so if anybody embodied most closely what Jesus would approximate or what David approximated in Jesus, it was David. See, John wrote to prove, to show forth, to manifest in signs that Jesus fulfilled the promise of the Messiah. And as, the, as time went on, in that period of time when God was silent, between Malachi and the Gospel of Matthew, that period of the intertestamental period when God did not speak through His prophets, still people were reflecting on the Scriptures. And as they reflected on 2 Samuel 7, they began to ask themselves, how, how is it that God would give David an enduring dynasty that would last forever? Is it just that he would always have a son on the throne? But they began to reflect, and especially we see it in Psalm 72, that the king would in fact live forever. That he would, be in, uh, uh, un, that he would not be corruptible. That it not, he would not see death. And somebody more than just human would be needed. So Jesus 
is the Christ, but he's also the Son of God. And this summer, we're going to be doing a deep dive into this um, John 1, which is sometimes called the prologue. We're going to spend weeks and weeks in John 1 because it's so deep. And we're just going to mine all of that depth. And it's really not a birth narrative, but it's a, a theological reflection on the incarnation. And it begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. See, the divine Word was God's Son. As he continues in in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son, one with the Father, who came from the Father, manifested that He was the Son through these signs that make up John's Gospel. He did things that only God could do. The signs point to a deeper reality that Jesus, born of a woman, yes, had God as his Father and uniquely manifested the glory of this union of God and man and the signs that he did. And there were many other signs Jesus did, but John singles these signs out because they uniquely point to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's why John wrote his gospel. But not, it's not just the bare facts about Jesus But you must believe in them. And in believing in them, you will have eternal life. We may know something of what John wanted us to believe. But what does John mean when he says believe? And what is the life that he's referring to? One of the interesting things, it may not be interesting to you, but to me, I I geek out on it. The, The manuscripts, there's thousands and thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. Some of them are just little scraps and pieces, but together they've been preserved, and we have a very accurate picture of the New Testament, right? More, you you know, scholars will debate over Homer's Odyssey, for which we only have four copies of, and they're quite late. We have over 2,000 copies of the New Testament. And one uh, one of the things that you'll notice in this In verse um, 31, it says, But these are written so that you may believe. That so that you may believe. That word is faith, right? It's belief. But the manuscripts are split half and half based on some translate it as an aorist, which means that it has, uh, um, you, you might translate it, so that you might become believers. It has an apologetic emphasis. And that's clear because we know John was writing to the Jews in the midst of a turbulent time. They have no religion. They have no temple worship. They're trying to figure out how does God dwell with us? How do we respond to him? What do we do when there's no sacrificial system? They're basically reinventing Judaism from the ground up. And John writes into that and says, look, Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the one you need to put your faith in. You need to become a believer in Jesus Christ because He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And so half of the manuscripts are in the aorist tense. 
so that you might become believers. But the other half are in presence so that you continue to believe. And I don't think we need to have an either or. I think it's a both and. It's only one letter in this word that separates the heiress from the present. The word is the same. And I think it's not an either or, but a both and, because we both need to become believers in Jesus Christ if you don't know him, but you all, as believers, need to continue in the faith. Belief for John is not merely assent. It's not merely knowing certain things about Jesus. I've described some things about who the Christ was. I've described how John describes Jesus as the Son of God from the Father. But who else knows those facts about Jesus, and yet we wouldn't describe him as a believer? Satan. James says the demons know and they shudder. They even have fear of God. They know all about God. They know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but they don't, they don't trust in Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus in that deep and abiding sense. The sense that John talks about in John 15, where he says in verse 4, Abide in me. This is Jesus speaking. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And he continues in verse 10 and says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. How do we abide in Christ? Well, we obey. We keep his commandments. And one of his commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the belief is not just knowledge, right? Knowledge doesn't have to result in action. But it's also a knowledge that's wed to obedience. And in John 3, verse 16, we know this so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that might through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, everyone knows verse 16, but did you notice the logic of the argument he makes? God loved the world so much that he sent his Son to save the world. And Jesus came as light. But the darkness, some rejected the light, loving the darkness instead. And those who don't believe in Jesus, and they are already condemned, and they are characterized by darkness. They're the ones that hide from the light. Did you, did you notice verse 21? He says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that he may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The person who loves in Jesus comes to the light, which represents obedience, the putting off of wicked deeds by allowing them 
to be exposed for evil in the light. So belief is knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to do, but that knowledge is accompanied by ongoing obedience through abiding in Christ. The confession is so helpful in its chapter on saving faith in section 2. It says, But this faith a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word of God. For the authority of God himself speaking therein, and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and for that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Amen. Our faith, our belief, is not in the position Jesus is, but it's an abiding trust that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you. When Jesus said, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it's your sins that he takes away. It's a trust that rests in him, that believes so deeply in the promises of God, that it steps out in faith and obedience, abiding in Christ. It's a belief that in Christ God has made his dwelling place with man. That in Christ, God has drawn near to heal and to put right the sin-cursed world we live in. And as you read John's gospel and you see the signs that he did culminating in his cursed death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead, you will continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Reading the gospel builds your faith. For in it, God's very character is revealed and his heart towards a wayward sinner like you and me. We see that Jesus, who is in masterful control of every situation he encounters, is working many signs and wonders, not to get fans or or to show off, but to usher in the new creation, the kingdom of God, which John calls eternal life, to build a new temple in his body, the church the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. And life, eternal life is the absence of death. And eternal life is the persistent absence of death forever. And to have such a gift, the dreadful curse that led to death had to be dealt with. That Jesus became a curse so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God, as Paul says. His turning water into wine and feeding the 5,000 are signs of the happiness and joy of eternal life and the beneficent provision of God that He gives liberally. That's the character and heart of God. Wine represents mirth and plenty and joy just as bread and fish represent the abundant provision of God to bless us. We see the new creation breaking in. As God turns water into wine and a few loaves and fishes into baskets full. The same can be said for all of the signs that Jesus does. The healing, it points to the time when there will be no more suffering, when sin's effects are reversed. Many of us deal daily with pain in our body. And we wait eagerly for that life that is free from that. And that's what's promised in the gospel. 
Each of the signs points to the life that belief in Jesus assures. It's a life that is breaking in on us so that the signs and our daily walking out of our faith in Jesus Christ, we get glimpses, just glimpses of that abundant life. But sadly, John shows us that not everybody responds to the signs in the same way. Some outright do not believe. Others believe, but for fear of publicity, they don't confess their beliefs publicly. He says in John 12, we read this morning in our Bible reading plan, John 12, 42, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Do you believe Jesus enough to tell other people that you believe in Jesus? Or are you ashamed to confess Him because it can lead to you being ostracized at work? Well, I don't want to be that homophobe. I don't want to be that bigot. I don't want to be labeled as a white supremacist. I'll just keep my faith quiet. I'll just keep it under... It's my private, my private religion. How do you respond to the gospel? Do you believe it? Do you continue to believe it? We have been reading through the gospel of John in our daily Bible reading and having just finished chapter 12 this morning. Maybe for you, this is the 50th time through the gospel of John. You've read it so many times. My question is, what effect does it have on you? You just go through it. It's, it's one of those things I, I have to check off. Or do you find that you see Jesus as more beautiful and lovely and deserving of your praise and adoration with each new reading? Do you find your faith stirred as you constantly Jesus Christ, the Son of God, perfect? Or is it boring? Is it the same old tired gospel story? My prayer for you that is that throughout the next couple of years, as we literally live in the Gospel of John, that your view would change, that you would begin to see the depths of the Gospel of John. As uh, I believe it was uh, Chrysostom said, it's shallow enough for a child to swim in and deep enough for an elephant to wade through. The Gospel of John is simple. We give it to new believers, but it's, it's a profundity to its depths. My prayer is that you will see the familiar stories through new eyes and that your faith would grow as the object of your faith becomes clearer and clearer. John wrote his gospel so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. We're thankful for the beauty that we see there. We're thankful for the signs that we saw as Jesus manifested the glory of God, demonstrating his union with you and calling us into union and communion with you and him by your spirit. Father, as we live in this book, as we inhabit it, we ask that you would give us all eyes of faith, that we would believe that we would continue to believe, trusting, resting, receiving Jesus Christ and His finished work on our behalf, reversing the curse of death and bringing us to You 
at peace. We thank you that you've given us this eyewitness account to stir and build our faith. May it do so in the coming weeks and months ahead. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.